0: To Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 21 and 22 today. Uh, and while you're flipping there, uh, I enjoy getting to do interactive things, I don't do them that often, so I'm going to do one quick one. And I promise, this is not going to be one of those, this is not going to be like an instant response sermon where you're constantly having to raise your hand or not. Have you ever flown on an airplane? Anyone ever been on an airplane? I have been on an airplane and it was, every time I've done it was the most terrifying experience of my life. Um, I detest them. Um, I am one of those people that believes if God had intended humans to fly, he would have given us wings. Um, So every time I get on an airplane, I do my absolute level best to not let everyone around me, see that I'm about to hyperventilate um, and I'm gripping the, the seats very tightly and my wife will tell you when we took off in the airplane to leave after our wedding I, was, I heard the, the engine crank up and I'm just sitting here like this and once you get in the air you calm down for just a second because the rumbling is over and then you realize the rumbling is over because you're thousands of feet in the air. And then you freak out again. And then you freak out again when you start rapidly descending. And you hit the ground and the wheels go. And I'm like, none of this was smooth. None of this was good from the beginning to the end. And then you, you've come out of the plane and you want to just fall down on your face and kiss the earth. Um, that that truly does feel like your mother at that point, point and you're just so happy to be back down. I bring all this up to say um, when you get on an airplane, if you've ever gotten on one, bought that ticket, gotten on an airplane and strapped your seatbelt on and you sat back in your seat, even if you grip the seat, because there, there's some of those people that get on airplanes and they put their seatbelt on and they're just like watching movies and they're more mad about the fact that the movie they want on the screen is not there and you're afraid you're going to die. Um, <laughs> There are some folks, they have no fear about being on one at all. And there are some folks like me who I'm afraid I'm going to be that statistic every time I get on one. But if you've ever bought a ticket and sat down and put the seatbelt on and made it through the plane ride, you share one thing in common, no matter how scared or not you were. It was that you believed that airplane was going to get you from point A to point B. How do I know you believed it? You got on the plane. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people throughout the history of planet Earth that have bought tickets for an airplane journey and they have gotten to the airport and just said, nope, 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 nope. And you can tell them that you are actually more likely to get injured in a car wreck than you are to get injured on an airplane. You can explain to them the math. You could show them the records of how many times people have actually been hurt in a plane versus how many times people have actually been hurt in a car. And the facts do not matter. That they are not certain enough that plane is going to make it from Atlanta to wherever in the world it's going to go. That they are just not going to get on it. The difference is the scared person who got on the plane believed it was going to get there. The person who didn't get on the plane didn't, even though they bought the same ticket through the same broker, whether or not they believed is proven by what they actually did. So we are going to talk about belief today. Belief is important, and belief is an often misdefined word, especially in in Western culture. Uh, So Let us go straight into the Word here. If you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're only going to read two verses this morning. Galatians 3, verses 21 and 22. Paul says, Is then the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin... That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Father, you've given us a simple message in this text this morning. I pray that I do not bungle it, that you would not let me do it. You would not let me overcomplicate You would give a soft, teachable heart as so they can understand the simplicity of the message in Galatians 3, 21 and 22 today. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> So, in this passage, we are closing out uh, Paul's section in Galatians where he is comparing the the law to the gospel. And we have, in the past several weeks, which if you haven't heard those, do not be afraid. It's not like you're not going to be able to follow the sermon today because you haven't heard the previous ones. Uh, They're all self contained. But what has happened up to this point is that Paul has explained all the differences between the law and the gospel. And the law, in general, is a set of rules and regulations that the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, were given uh, through Moses that explained, here's what a righteous life before God looks like. And they were wholly and completely unable to keep all these rules. Um, So Paul is preaching the gospel, which is different from... From the law uh, that whereas the law was concerned with do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The gospel is concerned with Jesus has already done all that is necessary for you if you will only trust him. if you will only trust him, if you will only believe, that's the word that our whole sermon our whole time together is going to revolve around today. Is what does it mean to believe? What does it really mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Um, We're going to only divide this text into two parts today verse 21 and the first half of 22 and the second half of 22 we're going to talk about what the law does which for some of you may be familiar and we're going to talk about what the gospel does Uh, first i want to see that the law exposes our unrighteous hearts Um, uh, this be the first section on your handout Uh, verse 21 paul says is the law then against the promises of god certainly not what promises or he is he talking about to so the Galatians, he's talking about the promises that God made Abraham way, 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 way back in the Old Testament. That involved there's going to be a promised land. Abraham, you're going to have lots of children and there's going to be a blessing for all those children. Is that those promises were extended to Abraham and to all those who would come after him. We as the church understand ourselves, and the Bible teaches, that we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That the promises of God that he made to Abraham belong to us. So, is this law, with all of its rules and regulations, and do this and don't do that, is that contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Paul says, no, that God gave these promises as an unconditional guarantee to Abraham and to his descendants. And later on, when he gives all these rules, that's not going to take away the promise he made. So how are these two not opposed to each other? Uh, The law is not contrary to the promises of God. But the law by itself, no law at all, is ever actually capable of giving life. Paul says that the law, if a law had been given, which could have been, which could have given life, that all of these rules and regulations that are in the Bible, all the do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. How many of you have ever tried really, really, really hard to keep that and found out that you kind of just spin your wheels? You ever done that? that you open the Bible up and the Bible stares back at you and says, here's what perfection looks like. And you go, that seems good. I would love to be perfect. There's only one problem. None of us are. The law, all these rules and regulations demand perfection. So since none of us can be perfect, the law cannot give life. So it says the law cannot give life. He says if the law could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So I want us to, if you have a little pen and you take notes, which I know some of you do, you can draw this little diagram. It's really easy. It's just a, two sets of words with an arrow in between them. So first thing I want you to think and put this in your mind if you're not drawing it. I want you to think or write down righteousness leads to, is a little arrow, Life. Righteousness leads to life. Right? Isn't that what Paul just said? If the law could bring life, then righteousness would be by the law. Righteousness and life are related to each other. Okay? Inseparably. There's no way to take them apart. There's a second half to this. Sin or unrighteousness, whichever one you want to write down, sin or unrighteousness leads to death. That is also inseparable. That's always been the story of the Bible. That's always been the the truth of the relationship between righteousness and life and sin and death. And there's nowhere in Scripture that this is clearer than Psalm 1. To save space on your handout, I didn't write it all out. But it's the entirety of Psalm 1, which reads, Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Sounds good, right? Okay? This is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. First off, that that to me is scary. When I see the law, I get terrified. This is this righteous man, his delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. That he enjoys obeying God. And as a result of his righteousness, he's like a tree that's planted right down by the river. It's never going to run out of water. It's always got what it needs to grow and thrive. It brings its fruit forth in season. And this tree is evergreen. Its leaf does not wither. Death is not a threat to this tree because of... Where it is, because of where it's planted, that is this man's righteousness. But then verse four says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Are you familiar with what chaff is? Anybody ever explained what chaff is? Chaff would have been a a powerful image in the biblical era because when people took the grain out to the threshing floor, they would pound the grain out of the the stalk or the, the head of it And you'd have the little grain piece that weighed a substantial amount compared to the little shell that was on it called the chaff. And what they would do is they would take the fork and they would throw it up in the air when the wind was blowing and the grain was heavy enough it would fall back down. But the chaff would get caught by the wind and would get blown away. So that was why when he says it's going to be like the chaff, the wicked are going to be like the chaff that the wind blows away. As he's saying, the wicked are what, at the end, end, during the judgment, what's going to happen to the wicked is exactly what happens to the chaff on the threshing floor. In the judgment, the righteous are going to be like the grain who fall back on the ground and are collected and, and are treasured. And the chaff are the worthless pieces that are left over that are blown away by the wind. That's not a very flattering description, is it? And yet, that is what the psalmist chooses to say in verse 1. But the ungodly are like the chaff. The wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Stability, prosperity, and life accompany righteousness, while instability and sure destruction accompany wickedness. This is a problem for us. Why? Why? Because we are not righteous. That all the law does is the law explains to us all of the ways that if we were to examine ourselves by it, the law proves to us that we don't match up to God's definition of righteousness. That we are not That tree planted by streams of water whose leaf is not going to wither. That we inside all of us have this wickedness, have this evil, have this sin. And as Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none of us. So if the law explains how we are unrighteous, ways that we can tell that we are not people, then how in the world is the law not contrary to the promises of God? The promises of God include life, and therefore righteousness is included in that. The law is not designed to give you righteousness. The law is designed to show you what you already don't possess. Because it's designed to show you the righteousness you don't possess, it would be a fruitless endeavor to go to it to try and get righteousness. It's not intended to provide you anything. The law shows you that you are caught in a cycle of your unrighteousness leading to your death. So how do we apply this? That uh, the law exposes our unrighteous hearts. Knowing the rules... Does not provide a heart willing to keep them. Okay. I've said this before. My child is the greatest growing source of sermon illustrations I possess. And she. I'm wholly convinced. You can correct me if you want to. I'm convinced that she knows what no means now. She does. Okay. She's nodding. My wife is confirmed. She knows what no means. Because when she reaches up to steal your glasses and then misses and scratches you, and you say no, she goes, mm. And just kind of stares at you. And then this little hand, she's just now gone and grabbed them and tried, and you go, No. Sometimes you can pop a little leg. No. She goes, mm. And this little hand. Again, no. And what does she do next? She knows she's not supposed to do it. She knows that. She knows the rules. But it doesn't mean she's willing to keep them. The law is the same way. Just because you know your Bible, just because you know what it says, just because you know the law, just because you know what righteousness is, doesn't mean that you're willing to keep them. And just because you know the rules doesn't mean that you're able to keep them. And by the way, anytime I say you, I'm including myself. Okay? I'm not special that somehow this doesn't apply to me. Knowing the rules provides exposure of a heart that is neither willing nor able. So let's take this opportunity to dispense with the niceties here for just a second. Along with our unrighteousness, there exists a deliberate attitude. And that attitude is the attitude of unbelief. The law does not just expose unrighteous hearts. The law exposes unbelieving hearts. What was the only thing Abraham had to do to receive the promises of God? Believing. Go back. Look at Genesis 12 if you want to. I'm not going to go back and read it, but that's where you see God call Abraham the first time. God goes to Abraham and says, get up, leave the house of your father and mother, and go to a land that is exactly in this spot on your map that you are perfectly aware of right now. Is that what God said? No. God said, go to a land that I will show you. He effectively says, get up, leave everything you know behind, and start walking. And when you get there, I'll let you know when you've arrived. And you know what Abraham did? Okay. (laughs) And he went. All Abraham had to do was believe God. And later on in the story of Abraham, which we're going to see this in our second point, Abraham believed God and that belief was accounted to him for righteousness. The law is not opposed to the promises of God because it doesn't put requirements on you that secretly God was like, I know I made these unconditional promises to you, but then hundreds of years after the fact, I'm going to add all these extra rules. And if you break these rules that I added later, I'm going to take away everything I promised you. That's not the way it works. God made these promises to Abraham and all Abraham had to do was believe them. God has made promises to you and all you have to do to receive them is believe them. But what the law exposes is not that we're just not perfect people, but the law exposes that we're unbelieving people. In our flesh, in our humanity, our fallen humanity, we don't just have unrighteous hearts, we have unbelieving hearts. All unrighteousness for one reason or another is tied to a lack of trust or fear of God. Maybe in a particular moment you don't believe that God can take care of you. Maybe in that maybe in one moment you don't believe that God can take care of you. So you decide to do something that maybe the Bible calls sin, but you're in a pinch and you gotta do something and you gotta do it right then. So maybe you don't believe that God can take care of you right then. Maybe you don't believe in a particular moment that God does care about you. Maybe God, if you cared about me, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe you don't believe in a particular moment that God's way is really the best way. That maybe, maybe you've had a moment where you say, I know what the Bible says, but. Maybe you don't really believe that God cares about what we do down here on earth anyway. That you believe he's there, you believe he's good and everything, but you know he's so far away, he doesn't care about little people like us. Maybe you have a moment of unbelief like that. Maybe you don't believe that God's actually going to punish you or discipline you for your sin. Maybe you're totally conscious of your sin and you have been for a really long time. It just doesn't bother you because you don't believe that God's going to do anything about it. Or maybe, finally, maybe you don't believe that there's a God there at all. At any rate, every sin is tied to an attitude of unbelief that exists in our hearts. If you find me a sin, I will find you unbelief. They always go together. Every time. So in Romans three ten, where Paul said, "As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one." The rest of the passage says, "There is none who understands; there is none who seeks after God." They've all turned aside; they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb; with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is saying, Why do people sin? Why are people unrighteous? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. It is a lack of belief in God. It is a lack of belief that he's there, or that he cares, or that his way is best, or that he knows what he's talking about. That I know every single—I know I'm not the only one who has ever said, "Well, I got a good way to handle this." Jesus, don't worry, I got this one. I can handle this. anybody ever done that? Yeah, your pastor's done it. And you find out after the fact that maybe his way was the best way in the first place, anyway. And we didn't know halfway as well as with all we did. You find me a sin, I'll find you an unbelief. And the law exists to expose that unbelief. All the think back to the very first sin committed in the garden. That God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree in this garden except for this one. And if you eat from this one tree, you will surely die. Then along comes that snake and says, "Did God really tell you not to eat from any tree of the garden?" Eve, "Oh no, we can eat of all of them, but this one we can't eat it nor can we touch it. And if we do, we'll die." And the snake said, "You will not surely what? Die." The snake's first play, Satan's first play, was to try and get humanity to disbelieve God. And you know what led to the sin? Eve believed the snake instead of God. The very first sin, the sin that began, every other sin began with unbelief. And every sin thereafter continues with unbelief. The law exposes that in us and thus exposes why we have separated ourselves from the promise of God that we don't believe Him at His word. And if I had just stopped there, we'd all go home and cry and be sad, wouldn't we? There's a second half of the sermon. There's a second half of this message. That praise God, the story doesn't stop with the law. The law proves that we are unrighteous and unbelieving, but praise God He sent His Son Jesus to change our hearts. To give us new life. To take out these hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that are not unbelieving but believing. Look at verse 22. Uh, Paul says the Scripture has confined all under sin. Why? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Believe. It appears that faith in Jesus Christ or belief is the way that righteousness is given. So the law can't give righteousness, right? All the law does is prove that we don't have it. The law is not capable of nor was it ever intended to give us righteousness. So if you're trying to obey the rules to be righteous before God, it's a lost cause. You can't do it. Because the law was never intended to give righteousness. The only way for you to obtain righteousness is through faith, believing in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. This is the same thing that happens in Genesis 15, 6. And that's quoted in Galatians 3, 6. So you don't have to turn to Genesis 15. Save you some real estate. If you want to see this quoted, it's in Galatians 3.6. Then this very same chapter, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That God has always worked this way. I'm not making up something new and saying that God works differently in the last half of your Bible than he does in the first. All the way back to the beginning, believing in God resulted in righteousness, resulted in life. All the way back to the beginning. Had Adam and Eve believed God instead of the snake, they would have not eaten the fruit and Lord knows what the world would look like today. He's the only one that knows because none of us sure do. Abraham believed God and righteousness was accounted to him. It was given to him. The righteous came, righteousness came from somewhere outside him. Namely, God. God. Now I want to give you some information about this verse that you just read that you would not see in English. In Greek, the words faith, so if you read the verse that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Those words faith and believe in Greek are two different forms of the same word. They're not two separate words. They're just two different parts of speech. That in English, we don't have a way to treat those words the way Greek does. So we had to use two different words. The Greek word is the word pistoua. That's the root. So in the first use, it's a noun. So we use the word faith. Because how do you use faith as a verb? Have you ever looked at somebody and said, I faith you. No, that's weird. We don't use faith as a verb. We use it as a noun. It's something that you either have or you don't. But have you ever looked at someone and said, I believe you? Yeah. Okay. Now, belief does have a noun form. It has, believe has belief. But the translators of my Bible, which is the New King James, have chosen to use the words faith and believe. Believe. In its second use, it's a participle, which means it's a verb being used as an adjective to describe a group of people, the people who have faith in Jesus Christ, that these are the ones who believe. Since this word is so important, I mean, Paul used it twice in the same verse, so we really need to make sure we understand what it means. Since this word is so important, its definition is important to us, biblical belief and the modern definition of belief are not the same type of belief, okay? Okay? Modern belief is kind of like <clears throat> Easter Bunny. Tooth fairy. Okay? Uh, that you put the tooth under the pillow and you tell the child the tooth fairy's coming. And the child was like, Tooth fairy! I love the tooth fairy. What does the tooth fairy do? And the parents are like, well, the tooth fairy comes and takes the tooth away and leaves you a dollar. Wow! And the kid's thrilled. I'm going to take my tooth and I'm going to put it under the pillow and magically in the morning I'm going to come back and there's going to be money under there. And hopefully your child doesn't start be pulling teeth to try, you know. But the child believes that the tooth fairy is there child believes that the Easter bunny is real. Belief in something existing. To any parent who is depending on the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny, I'm so sorry for what I've just done to you. <laughs> but belief that something exists. Belief that something is there. That's the modern definition of belief. This is how somebody can say... I believe in God. I just don't adhere to any religious system. The reason I say that specifically any religious system is you can find people like this in any culture. You can find folks that say, "Well, absolutely I believe in God. I'm a Catholic." I just don't go to mass. I just don't do this. You can find people in different countries that say, of course, I'm, I'm a Hindu because I was born into a Hindu family. I just don't go to Hindu temple. I just don't do any of this. Different kind of belief. That's not the kind of belief biblically we're talking about here. Someone says, well, I, I belief if I believe God exists, I just don't let that affect the way I live my life in any certain way. Modern belief. Biblical belief is believing that something or someone exists, believing that it's factual, but also allowing that belief to mold and shape the way you live your life. The Bible argues that if you don't allow a belief to mold and shape your life, you don't believe in something in the first place. Okay? Uh, The the best illustration I've, I've ever been given about this is a fire alarm. Imagine two people sitting in a theater, and they're looking up at this thing on the wall, and one of them says, I know what that one is. That's a fire alarm. And the other person says, explain to me what a fire alarm is. And somebody says, well, I've heard that fire alarms are these things that sit on the wall that when smoke hits them, they start ringing. And that's to let all the people in the building know that there's a fire in the building, and if they want to be safe, they need to immediately get up and leave. Oh, cool. That's neat. I believe in fire alarms. And they both sit there, and the movie starts, and what do you know? A fire breaks out, and the fire alarm starts going off. And one of them looks at the other and goes, what's that sound? And they say, well, I think that's what a fire alarm would sound like if it was going off. Well, doesn't that mean there's a fire, and we need to get up and leave? And the other one goes, oh, no, a fire alarm's never gone off before. We're going to be fine. That's just what one might sound like if it were to go off. Meanwhile, the other person doesn't ever hear them say this because they hear the ringing and they get up and run out of the building. When the building goes up in flames, who lived? The person who believed fire alarms were real or the person who listened to the fire alarm and ran out of the building? The person who listened to the fire alarm and ran out of the building. There's a difference in believing in something and actually believing something. Likewise, James uses a similar explanation. In James chapter 2, verses 14 and then 18 through 23. So if you're looking at your handout and you're like, what in the world? These verses don't go directly together. Um, I I notated your verse numbers on there so you can see. uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, I put a little asterisk by that faith on your handout. Do you see it? If you're reading in an NIV or a New American Standard or another translation that is not a variant of the King James, you will see something that exists in the Greek that it's not left out of the King James per se it's just not grammatically necessary so they didn't put it in but you do lose some clarity without it in the New American Standard or the NIV or something else you'll see something of the nature can that faith or such faith save him anybody see that? anybody got an extra word before faith? yeah the reason that that word exists there and it's, it's in there in the Greek that word is there what James is saying is, can the kind of faith that never, makes a, that never changes a person's life, is that the kind of faith that can save somebody? The answer, no. Can faith save somebody? Absolutely. That's the only thing that can save somebody is faith in Jesus Christ. But a person who has the kind of faith that never affects the way they live their life, they don't believe in Jesus. On the authority of God's Word. If your belief in God or your belief in Jesus does not affect the way you live your life, you don't believe in Jesus. Well, I believe He's real. Well, what does James says? Someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. How can you show somebody your faith without your works? Can you do it? No. You've got to take your word for it. Verse 19. You believe that there's one God. Anybody in here believe that there's one God? I do. There's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe that. Do you know that Satan has a right belief about who God is? Do you know that the demons believe in God? They most certainly believe he's real. They have no doubt in their mind whatsoever. Satan has never gone to bed at night. I don't, I don't know if demons sleep. Satan has never laid his head down on his bed at night and gone, I wonder if God's real. That's never kept him up at night. He's never wondered about that. He knows very well that God is real. And what's his reaction to knowing that God is real? Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham what God? Believed. God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Friend, if you believe in Jesus, if you tell me you believe in Jesus, I better be able to see it somewhere in your life. If your faith only exists in your words, your faith doesn't exist. Listen to me now. If you got... If you got Zachariah... What do I mean by that? Hail Zachariah. You know, th- this, is, this is John the Baptist's daddy. Your, your wife in her old age is going to bear a son. How's that going to happen? Since you didn't What? believe here's what's going to happen this baby boy that you want to tell everybody about you're not going to say anything until he's born you're going to be silent if you were to get Zachariah and not allowed to speak would anybody know that you believe in, in, in Jesus at all Would they? By what you do, by where you go? By how you treat other people? Would they know? If they do if they wouldn't, lovingly, y'all, I, I promise you, I'm I'm not trying to be judgmental I'm not this is a loving warning to you if you want to know why I'm concerned about warning you (laughs) come back tonight and read the passage where I talk about that I'm warning you because I don't want you to be deceived that thinking and having this picture in your head that I believe God is real therefore when I stand before him he will be satisfied with my belief that he exists and let me into his heaven that's not how it works To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus, is to obey Jesus, is to take what he said as true. The truest thing there is. Romans three twenty-one and twenty-two say, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of who? Not our righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. If you want the righteousness of God, and, he, and, and here's the kicker if you're going to have righteousness before God, you've got to have His. Because we don't have our own. And remember, righteousness leads to life. Wickedness, sinfulness, unrighteousness leads to death. If you want life, you must have righteousness. And since we can't have our own, we must have God's. And the only way to have God's righteousness is to have belief to believe in Him, to actually believe in what He said. You've got to come to Jesus Christ in faith. You have got to come to Him and say, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. I believe that Jesus, everything You did was enough for me. That I will rest in You and You will be my righteousness. That's what You have offered. That's what You have promised. That's what I will claim. That I bring nothing to You but my sinful, dirty self and ask You to change that heart and give me a new one. And I believe You'll do it because You said You would. Come to Jesus like that, and you will receive a righteousness that's not your own. And you know what's funny? Is when you reach that point and you come to Jesus Christ and He gives you that righteousness that's not your own, do you know what starts happening to the way we behave? It changes. That you can try and try and try and try and try on your own over and over and over and over and over, and you'll keep hitting snags and setbacks and no, I don't actually want to do this and this is I'm being I'm being good, but being good's miserable. And you come to Jesus and then you find out that doing bad's actually miserable. That you don't really want to do that anymore. That somehow that sin's not fun. Somehow you can't sleep well doing that anymore. Somehow it's just, it doesn't fit who you are anymore. Why? Because a righteousness that is not your own has come to dwell in you. It's God's righteousness and it's given to you because you have come to Jesus Christ in faith. So here's your application. The promises of God life eternal, the forgiveness of sin belong to those who really believe in God through Jesus Christ. What He says about righteousness is true. What He says about sinfulness is true. What He says about our sinfulness is true. And what He says about our way out of that sinfulness and death is true. Here's your opportunity. Have you ever believed in Jesus Christ? Have you ever come to Him and left your old you behind for dead and said, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you but what's left of me, I'm yours. If you haven't, then you're stuck in that mire of unrighteousness and sin and hopelessness. You have a way out now. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk with you about how you can give your life to Christ. You've got several different ways you can do this. Joyce and Abby wrote the us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. You can either come down this aisle and tell me, Pastor, I need to talk to you about giving my life to Christ you got a guest card on the side of your bulletin that you can fill out if, if coming out an the aisle terrifies you. Um, then you can fill out that guest card and I will follow up with you. Or you can catch me on the back door uh, the way out. And you know what? Our church members here will be perfectly happy if you shake my hand and say, I need you to come tell me how to accept Christ. They will smile and clap walking out the door and say, we're fine with our past not being there for this. I just don't want you to leave here not knowing Jesus Christ. I don't want you to leave here without saving faith. I don't want you to leave here with an unbelieving heart. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, I pray today that for those of us in here who still struggle with unbelief, Lord, I pray for believers who have moments where we think that maybe we have a better idea, or we understand something better, or don't worry, Jesus, we got this. I pray that you would convict us that that is unbelief. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord Jesus, I pray for the people who are in here who just flat don't believe. They've never come to you in faith. Okay. But Lord, I know by the witness of your scripture that your Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Lord. The, the folks in here who were not saved today, I believe that you are convicting, that you are pointing out things in their hearts. You know what? You might believe that God is there, but you don't believe Him. You might have faith that God exists, but you don't have faith in Him. Lord, I pray that you would drive that home. And that you would call those people to salvation today. If they have the opportunity, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that you would grow your kingdom today. Pray that you bless the of time of invitation, and that you be the only Spirit reading here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and turn to page 307. <laughs>